And let me read this to us this morning. This is James 5, verses 7 through 10, or 7 through 11, actually. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit from the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. So we have a bit of a conundrum today as we have said this is the third week of Advent, the theme Historically, this week of Advent is joy, and yet our text today, what we just read here in James, seems to be like the opposite of joy. In fact, uh, if you're reading James 5, 7 through 11 in an ESV translation, the heading they give to this paragraph is patience in suffering. <laughs> so what's, what's going on here? Why are we reading this today? Uh, you've probably noticed, if you've been around here for any length of time, we read at least four passages of Scripture every week as a church. There's an Old Testament reading, uh, we do a responsive reading from the Psalms, uh, there's normally a Gospel reading, and then a New Testament epistle is read also. And most weeks, the readings are not four separate, random passages of Scripture that we just plucked out of thin air. But rather, the readings are intended to come together in support of a larger theme. And the larger theme is often understood by what we call the prayer of the day. The prayer we pray together at the beginning of the service is what's traditionally known as a collect, meaning it's meant to like collect the thought or the thread that is found throughout the scripture readings and sort of synthesize those uh, themes or that theme in some kind of a way. And now we tweak that arrangement a little bit uh, because we preach through whole books of the Bible at a time. So we, we may tweak the scripture reading somewhat to correspond with whatever our sermon text is at a time. Uh, but by and large, each week, all of our scripture readings are meant to dovetail in some way. And, and that is no more clear than it is today. And I want us to see that this morning. So before I dive into James 5, I want to briefly remind us of some of the things we've already heard this morning. First, uh, we began with a reading from Isaiah, in which the prophet has a vision of a redeemed and restored Zion, which is an Old Testament word for Jerusalem. A redeemed and restored Jerusalem. And in the vision, the wilderness or the desert the Hebrew word Araba. The Araba, it's also where we get the word Arab. The Araba starts to bloom, like the wilderness starts to blossom, and the image is that what was once a wasteland becomes flourishing, it becomes abundant, it becomes filled with like streams and pools of water. Um, it's not unlike creation itself in Genesis. Am I not alone? Sorry. 
Can you hear me now? It's not unlike creation itself, where life springs forth from what is wild and waste, like in the beginning, like things were formless and void, and then creation sprang out of it. So here in Isaiah, the desert blooms, the Arabah blooms, and, and, and then in addition to that, it said weak hands and feeble knees and anxious hearts are strengthened by the promise of God's coming salvation. So those who are weak are made strong by the prospect of what is to come. And then, in addition to that, the prophet sees those who have had like physical infirmities healed. The deaf hear, and the blind see, and the lame walk, and the mute can speak, and, and then again suddenly water breaks forth from the desert, and the land becomes like a lush oasis full of pools of water and plant life. And then, finally, in the midst of all of this, this highway appears. A highway appears, a road appears, a path appears, and that leads back to this, like, restored Jerusalem. A highway in the wilderness that leads to a restored Jerusalem. And the highway, the prophet says, is the way of holiness. It's the way of, like, set-apartness. And it materializes in the desert and leads to the city of God. And this is how that passage concluded. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, Jerusalem, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So don't miss this. The image is that those who were living in a barren, unflourishing wasteland, afflicted with weakness and serious physical disabilities, they're going to be healed of their weaknesses. The price shall be paid for them. This, that passage described them as the ransomed. And then they will come singing and filled with joy into this city where sorrow will be no more and will be replaced with everlasting joy, eternal joy. We then saw that same theme continue in our psalm, Psalm 146, where God is portrayed as the one who frees people from their affliction. He who keeps faith forever. He executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And then we see the same imagery continuing as we get into our gospel reading, and and we find John the Baptist, who is a central figure in the season of Advent, because he is the herald of Jesus' first Advent. He's the one who proclaims, right, about the coming Messiah, the coming Lord. John is the harbinger. He goes before Christ as his herald. And in our gospel reading today, John's been arrested. He's sitting in jail. He's hearing word about what Jesus is doing. And he sends a messenger somehow to Jesus and asks, are you really him? Now this is John the Baptist who had already proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God, right? He saw Jesus walking towards him. He said, behold the Lamb of God. He's the one who baptized Jesus. But then he's sitting in jail, and he goes, 
But is this really him? Isn't that fascinating? Do you remember how Jesus responded to John the Baptist there? How does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with the words of Isaiah. Same thing we read, Isaiah 35. Jesus says, go tell him it's all beginning. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John, as you're sitting in the wasteland, in the Araba of the prison, take heart because the vision of Isaiah is coming to fruition because Christ has appeared, and in doing so, a highway to the restoration of God has appeared. By the way, do you remember what John the Baptist's message to the people was concerning the coming Messiah when he was heralding the first advent? Do you remember what he said? He, he said things like, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Another way to translate that is, prepare the way of the Lord and make his highway straight. He literally quotes Isaiah as he declares the coming of Messiah. So we have three beautiful interconnected passages of Scripture that all point us to the same truth. And then we come to James 5, headed patience and suffering. And James illuminates for us a problem with all of this that we're all experiencing, even if we're unaware of it. And it's this. The highway of God, which is Christ himself, has appeared... He is the way and the truth and the life, and yet you and I have not yet come singing into the restored city of God with joy. We are not living in this restored place where there is no pain or sorrow and all afflictions have been healed. We are living in the in-between. Every generation has its historical moment. There were generations that longed for the first advent, right? Who prophesied and expectantly waited for the coming of the Messiah and who wondered, is it ever going to happen? And then there were generations that witnessed the first advent, that saw the Christ. And, and now we are among hundreds of years of generations who await the second advent and this movement toward full restoration. But as Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part, right? Because the longer we wait, right, the longer we anticipate the second coming of Christ, the more we are inclined to think that it is not real and he is never coming. The more we're sitting in the Araba, just like John in prison, the more we're apt to wonder, but is he really the Christ? And so here's the counsel that James and, and most of the other New Testament writers give us. Be patient. Be patient. So here's my question to us today. What does it look like for us to be patient as we await the second advent? How are we to live? I want to give us a few thoughts that come to us from James this morning. And in many ways, come to us from the New Testament at large. First is this. We are to live as if it could be any moment. We are to live as if it could be any moment. 
And this is something that defies reason and experience, doesn't it? Yet on multiple occasions, the New Testament calls us to live as if we are on the precipice of Christ's return. The parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, the parable of the ten versions in Matthew 25, even James here says the coming of the Lord is, quote, at hand. The judge is standing at the door, he says. However, he said that 2,000 years ago, right? And we're naturally inclined to think, well, it didn't happen then, and it didn't happen for my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, or my grandparents, it's, it's probably not going to happen for me, right? This probably isn't going to happen in my lifetime. And the longer it goes on, again, we're inclined to go, and is it even ever going to happen? Is this all just a bunch of baloney? And yes, that might be the reasonable thing to think. However, Scripture repeatedly calls us to think and live differently, as if it is on the horizon. As Taylor told us two weeks ago, Jesus is clear, no one knows exactly when this is going to be, and it is pointless to try to like read the signs of the times to nail down some kind of exact date. But do you remember Jesus' instruction? Be ready. Be ready as if it is like, like at the door. Jesus used this imagery of a thief coming in the night, which is not something we ever expect. We don't expect somebody to break into our house. But, but, but then Jesus poses this question. What if you knew he was coming? Like, what if you knew that there was the potential for the thief to come and break into your house? What would you do differently? How, how would your life be altered? That's really the point here. What does it look like for you to live as if it could be any moment? A couple things. It doesn't look like a Tim McGraw song where you're skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and riding a bull named Fu Manchu, right? It doesn't look like the movie The Bucket List. And this is our second point. We should live as if the most important and valuable things are truly yet to come. Have you noticed that the message that we've ingested from popular media is that this is all there is, and so we should really make the most of it. We should really get as much out of this as we can. But yet living as if Christ's coming is on the horizon, it does not look like extreme self-focus. Why does it not look like this self-focus where I need to suck the marrow out of life because the end is near? Why does it not look like that? Because the end is not near, the beginning is near. And as it is right now, I'm living in the desert, I'm living in the wasteland, I'm not trying to get the most out of the wasteland that I can. As if the best, as if this is the best that I'm going to get. No, I'm looking ahead to the lush oasis that is to come. I'm not trying to find comfort or meaning or purpose in the desert. Like, I'm looking for the garden that is going to spring forth out of this place. 
Which is, by the way, why James began this whole chapter by speaking to the wealthy. We didn't read this part, but the the very first part of chapter 5 is James addressing those who have money. And he doesn't mince words. Let me read it to us real quick. These are verses 2 through 5. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, you have placed your hope in the wrong things. And when the springs shoot forth in the desert, the things you thought would bring you meaning and value and power that you schemed and defrauded to accumulate will suddenly evaporate as you come face to face with what actually matters. He names all of these things that we seek after, that we long for, that we truly desire, and he tells us, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. So patiently awaiting the coming of Christ doesn't look like making the most of this place and trying to satisfy yourself with worldly goods or wealth. As Jesus clearly said, and as I think James kind of alludes to, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy and where, guess what, thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or in other words, Store up for, for yourself like good things in this promised life that is to come for those who have experienced the highway, who have stepped on to Christ as the road, as the way into this. In other words, don't settle for what is perishable when what is eternal is available to you because you just can't wait. And be patient. Like it's going to be okay if I don't have great wealth in this life because I will have no need of wealth in the new Jerusalem. Right? It's going to be okay if I don't get to see Machu Picchu or the pyramids because I'm going to be in the literal eternal city of God. I'm not going to feel like I've missed out on anything in the desert. I'm not going to wish I was still in the Araba. As an aside, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, you remember, where did he go? You remember? He, he went to the desert. He went to the wilderness. In the Greek, it's the Eremos. The Hebrew is Araba. The Greek is Eremos. So he literally enters into the wilderness, into the barren place, and the devil tempts him with nourishment and power and notoriety, like all things that we crave. And what Jesus models for us is that even while in the desert and even while being tempted with some very tempting things, don't, don't miss that. Like, it, he wasn't above the temptation in that it, it wasn't as if the temptation of the devil wasn't tempting to him. 
No, it was tempting to him. But because he's Christ, because he's sinless, because he responds to the temptation with the word of God, he overcomes the temptation. He shows us, though, that in the midst of that, in the midst of temptation, there is still something better. There is still something worth being patient and, and waiting for. And I, I think that's, that's part of the point of things like fasting for us. It reminds not only our hearts, but our bodies that God is actually our sustainer. While we are in the desert, much like the Israelites in the Old Testament, God is the one who provides for us. He's the one who takes care of us. Is it perfect? No, it's the desert. Is it everything we want it to be? No, it's the wasteland. But is God taking care of us? Yeah, he is. But we're also reminded in fasting that there is a coming day where I will never be thirsty or hungry again. And it's worth waiting for, even in my discomfort. James's next note of counsel, and our third point is this. Don't get hangry. Don't get hangry. Let me explain what I mean. Y'all know what it means to be hangry. Uh, I love that phrase, and believe me, uh, in a house with seven people, mostly women, uh, it's a real thing. <laughs> Well, what's happening there? What, what's happening when you get hangry, when I get hangry? Well, my lack of food, coupled with my lack of getting what I want when I want it, creates a physiological response in me where I lose all control of my ability to be kind to other people until my needs are met. Have you ever experienced that in the church? Have you ever experienced like the anxiety that comes from somebody who isn't getting what they want when they want it? And like the anger and the vitriol and the harshness and the unkindness that can come from that. Have, have you ever been that person? James says, cut it out. Stop. It's no different from the bucket list concept. In both cases, me and my needs have become what is most important to me. Except in this instance, my lack of getting what I want results in me lashing out against the body of Christ. This is what James is talking about in verse 9 when he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In other words... You look, like a, you look like a fool when you act like your desires trump everyone else's desires, especially when the one whose will actually is the most important thing in the world is standing in the doorway. It's like when you're gossiping about someone and then you realize they're standing right behind you. What in the world do you and I have to grumble about when Jesus has appeared like a highway in the desert, securing your eternity, freeing you from death and sin? Don't allow the enemy to gain a foothold with you because you are tired of patiently waiting and perhaps more important, recognize that human suffering, which we all experience, carries with it a particular temptation to abandon all patience. Instead, instead, here's what Peter says. Be sober, be watchful, 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Be watchful. Scripture is calling us to this deep state of vigilance over our own soul. Be watchful. Every night uh, we pray with our kids. Uh, we pray through uh, just a very uh, basic but traditional Compline liturgy. Compline is like the time of prayer before bed. And um, we say something as a part of that liturgy um, that says, guide us waking, O Lord, and guard us sleeping. For awake we watch with Christ, and asleep we rest in peace. Guide us waking and guard us sleeping so that awake we may watch with Christ and asleep we may rest in peace. Help me, Lord, when I am awake to be vigilant and watchful for my own flesh and for the schemes of the enemy that would seek to lead me to this place of impatience and would seek to lead me to put my hope in the fleeting things of this world. And then fourth, James says, look to the lives of the saints and their examples. Uh, be encouraged by those who, who, who have come before you, who have endured with patience and have remained faithful to God. Uh, in particular, James mentions the prophets. Uh, he also mentions Job, who are all examples of people who, by and large, were doing what God wanted them to do. Imperfectly, but, but by and large, doing what God wanted them to do, and yet their lives were at times miserable. We can take heart in the fact that our struggles are not the simple result of God's displeasure with us. We're not experiencing hard things just because God is mad at us or angry with us. Because even these people in Scripture who seemingly were obedient to him in every way still experience great hardship. We can take heart in the fact that it's not because God's angry with us and that even some of his strongest servants experienced hardship. But, but here's the key takeaway for me from the prophets. They endured. That's, that's what James is getting at here. Even when it got to the point where their lives were like truly at risk, they endure in obedience and perseverance in service to God. They remained faithful even when they had every reason not to be. So, so let's look to them, James says, and let's take heart. Let's be encouraged by their witness because most of us do not have it as bad as they did. Most of us do not have it as bad as Job did. And so let's look at them and go, man, here's what I'm dealing with, but here's what he dealt with. And what does God do? God is compassionate and merciful, James says. So how in, how in the world is this text about joy, right? Well, it's really not so much about present joy. It's more about pressing through hardship because of the promised joy that is ahead. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think we experience joy in this life, uh, and there are different kinds of joy. There's what I would call, like, common joy, 
which is just the joy that can be experienced by anybody, uh, regardless of faith. Uh, the birth of a child, uh, a beautiful scenic vista. Like, those are all moments where the power of God is breaking in, even if you don't believe in God. It's, those are moments where God's manifesting himself uh, to you, uh, but, but, but it's experienced by everybody. Everybody gets a piece of that. And, and then there's what I would call Christian joy, like joy as a fruit of the Spirit, and and this is the transcendent happiness of knowing that your sin has been removed and your guilt has been taken away and um, that you're going to be a part of God's family forever. It's like the joy of the gospel. But James 5, I, I don't think he's talking about either of those forms of joy. Uh, those like present forms of joy. It's talking about this enduring eternal joy that is to come. It's the joy described in Isaiah when he says that the people who are on the highway are going to come into this city singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's, it's eternal joy. It's the joy that comes from there no longer being any pain or sorrow or suffering from the knowledge that that is the case. And here's the difference between that joy and the joy that we experience now. The joy we experience now is only momentary. I experienced joy, you know, like when my child was born, but then it went away. I maybe experience joy when I reflect on the reality of the gospel, but then it goes away. There are times when I can sit back and look at my children and my family and go, God, like God has been so gracious and merciful to me. And then just as quickly I can go, but what if I lose one of them? And the joy is gone. And this is the world we live in, is it not? Where, where I catch little glimpses of transcendence, and then just as quickly it evaporates. It's like, uh, you know, like when you wake up and you clearly remember the dream you just had, but within a few minutes you can't even recall what it was about. The joy that is to come, though, is perpetual. It isn't momentary. It isn't fleeting. It doesn't fade because it isn't tempered by brokenness. In this new Jerusalem, joy is the set point of being, not an occasional bright spot. And James says that church that is what we are to be focused on. And let the moments of joy that we find in this life, in the midst of the Araba, let the moments of joy we encounter, like, steal us for the hardship that we are to encounter as well along the way, as glimpses of the better life that is to come, that is a present reality, that is an already but not yet that that is our future. Let me close with Paul's words from Colossians 3. Here's what he says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In other words, seek the kingdom of God. 
this place where everything is as God would have it be. He says, that's where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, not on the wasteland. And he says this really interesting thing. He says, for you have died. And your life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, when he returns, his second advent, Paul says, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you have been born again, you have been reborn into this place Even though we don't experience it fully yet, you have been reborn into a true life that is real and is yet to come. And when Christ returns, our full being will appear because the head of the body to which we belong has appeared. And when he appears, I truly will appear in his kingdom as his beloved son or daughter, freed from the brokenness of the wasteland, I will truly appear, and the result will be transcendent, abiding, perpetual joy. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the beauty of your gospel. This good news that tells us that that this uh, broken place in which we currently reside is not our lot. That it isn't our eternity. But rather, God, you are going to remake this place. You're not going to extract us from here and take us somewhere else, but rather... You're going to restore all things and springs are going to burst forth and the barren wasteland is going to burst to life. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the highway to this restored place. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of the holiday season, um, we experience Uh, the brokenness of everything because we find ourselves in this season that is seemingly all about joy and yet for many of us it is one of the hardest times of the year. Because of loved ones we've lost or disappointments that we've experienced or illnesses that we're wrestling with in ourselves or in our family. And in all of these things, even when we are tempted to say, forget it, and to just pursue what is um, at hand, what is worldly, God, give us your grace to persevere in patience and to remain focused on what is to come. And God, I pray that through your spirit, that truly would transform us into people of joy, people not wearing rose-colored glasses, not people putting on some kind of facade of joy, but people who more regularly experience glimpses of what is to come because we recognize that what is, is not forever. Help us, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.
Stand with us, guys.